is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Menthol cigarettes could soon be a thing of the past across the U.S. The FDA proposing a ban on menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. It's the most aggressive action taken against the tobacco industry in years by the agency. And this will have a major impact on African Americans. We will go in-depth to find out why. Moderna now asking the FDA to approve its COVID vaccine for the youngest of kids. But will many parents line up? They're little ones for the shot. And college graduates are putting their knowledge to use as they're leading the charge to form unions among the working class. President Biden asking Congress for $33 billion in aid to help fight Ukraine fights Russia. The money won't last long, so we'll go in-depth into what happens if the war doesn't end. New government report shows how Medicare Advantage plans... They're denying care that they should be covering for thousands of people. And working from home might be great for a lot of people when it comes to brainstorming with your coworkers. Might slow things down on the creative side. And uh, maybe it has to do with too much focus. Yeah, on Zoom in particular, and when we do the interview, just to let people in on this, we're going to do the interview on Zoom and see if we could figure out what to ask. <laughs> the <laughs> slowest, <laughs> worst interview we do because we're staring at ourselves in the little box. Exactly. Yeah. And we will prove the point. Okay, but we start though with menthol cigarettes. And the proposed FDA ban, Dr. Philip Gardner is founding member and co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Doctor, thanks for being with us. This is a significant move on the part of the FDA to uh, ban menthol cigarettes flavored cigars. But can you explain to our listeners why this is perhaps of particular interest to African-Americans? Well, um, and first, thank you for having me and taking up this question. Unfortunately, African-Americans died disproportionately from tobacco-related diseases, heart disease, lung cancer, and stroke. And the main vector of the death and disease is menthol cigarettes. Um, Menthol cigarettes have been disproportionately marketed to the African-American community over the past um, 50 years. There are more advertisements for these products in the Black community. There are more special promotions. And I guess what's most disturbing is that Af- and that, that menthol cigarettes in the African-American community are cheaper. Um, let's just think back to 2009 when the FDA got the authority to oversee the uh, regulation of tobacco products. They got rid of 13 flavors in cigarettes, and the only one that they left was menthol cigarettes. And th- th- that was the first and the original sin. And the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council has been working tirelessly since then to actually reverse that. And finally, the FDA, finally, the FDA has taken a step in this direction. Why was it left as the only flavor? Um, There was pressure put on them by Southern senators, by the tobacco industry, Um, even members, certain members, not all, but some members of the um, Congressional Black Caucus. Um, And of course, you might look at it this way, and these are um, a few uh, years old, Methyl cigarettes as part of is about 35 to 36% of the tobacco market. Um, and the tobacco market um, in 2018 was some $220 billion. So 36% of that is number of billions of dollars um, over $70 billion. So that's why, why this has hung around so long. And I should just say that even though they've begun the rulemaking process, um, Today, it's going to take years to still get these products off the market. Has there, hmm. not, has there not also been a lot of sort of very 
secret, maybe not so secret, uh, lobbying money uh, that the industry, the tobacco industry, has been giving out to different groups, uh, <clears throat> pretending you know, that they're interested in uh, overturning, for example, regulations that would ban menthol cigarettes all for the sake of because they think it's going to, by criminalizing it, it's going to create friction. For example, one report said it would create friction between cops and black people. Well, let's be clear. Um, let's may take your first point. Um, the tobacco industry has been giving money, particularly to certain black organizations, for the last um, 40 to 50 years. Um, and many of them are proud of it and have come out with this. Let's be clear. The FDA just did a, um, rule, a public um, hearing on the rule um, uh, an hour ago, and it's true for the FDA and it's true for all the local and state policies. None of them, I repeat, none of them make possession of these products illegal. So the idea that somehow a, a person who possesses a menthol cigarette is going to be criminalized, this is not the case. There are 72, at least 72 cities around the country that have outlawed the um, use, um, outlawed the, um, possess oh, Jesus, Phil, outlawed the um, um, sale of menthol. Not one person has been arrested for it because it's about production, distribution, and selling. It's not about possession. The this, whole idea that this is going to lead to criminalization is just not true and just hasn't happened either. Now, this doesn't affect uh, e-cigarettes, mm -hmm. you know, the jewels and, and, and other things. Those come in, in menthol uh, as well, right? We, we would argue that those flavors, and that rule was supposed to be passed, I believe, is the September 9th, that many of the flavors that are still in electronic cigarettes still need to be removed. And the FDA has been um, um, tardy in terms of making this actually apply. Um, so that's still some work that still needs to be done um, on that issue. Dr. Philip Gardner, founding member, co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Right now, Moderna joining Pfizer and asking the FDA to approve its COVID vaccine for kids younger than six. The hope is to make the vaccines available for this group by summertime. But how do parents of these children feel about it? Dr. Danielle Fisher is chair of pediatrics at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Uh, I can already hear some parents uh, taking the figures that just came out yesterday from the CDC saying that something like 75 percent of children in this country have now been exposed to the corona virus. And some of those parents saying, well, why get vaccinated then? Absolutely. I'm hearing that from some families myself. Um, I find that some people are skeptical um, about both vaccines as well as how severely COVID would affect their littlest of ones. And um, parents are not really sure what to make of this. I think some people are very on the fence about it. And um, it's going to be a little bit of a wait and see game. So what do you tell them when they, they come to you with these kind of concerns? And, and does the Omicron variant, I mean, does this kind of change that, that game of what constitutes a successful shot? If, if, you know, the efficacy comes down because this is what we're dealing with, um, that argument that they say, you know what, they're probably not going to go to the hospital anyways, and there's still a 50-50 chance they could get the thing, so, so I'm not going to give them the shot, Doc. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, they're kind of right. Um, we're not seeing hugely huge numbers of very sick children from COVID, including from Omicron, in the group less than five. There are, however, rare cases of severe issues that can happen with COVID in that age group, as well as these kids are still a repository of COVID, and it's 
potentially exposing other people. So we kind of have to weigh the risks and benefits, and that's what I've been talking to parents about for the most part. Is there another issue here, which is the great unknown, that, that, that we don't really know, do we, that these youngsters, even toddlers who might contract the virus, may be asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic? Do we really know what might happen in 5, 10, 15 years once infected? We don't. We really don't know. We are anticipating that it's going to potentially be like most other viral illnesses that kids can get. And we think about things like influenza, um, even other coronaviruses and other viruses that, that travel around. Um, for the most part, you know, we only, we only know because we're testing. So a lot of these kids in the future are probably going to have mild colds and they could be caused by COVID-19. And we won't know unless we actually test. We have had weird things go on, though, in these rare cases, right? And there has been spikes of things like pediatric diabetes over the course of the pandemic. So, so you know, this does ravage the body when it really takes hold. Yeah, it really can. We've seen lots of interesting things where there's an uptick in appendicitis in kids who have had COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of things. So, you know, we really, uh, because this is happening in real time, all we can do is make our best efforts to try to protect everybody, which is one thing the vaccine can offer. Um, as well as continued surveillance and, and, you know, continued working together between parents, families, communities, and, um, you know, physicians to try to protect our kids the best way we can. You know, we, uh, Doctor, we've done so much on COVID on this show for the past two and a half years. It's rare that we hear a new one, but I think we just did. Uh, I, these youngsters getting uh, COVID, you're saying that you're seeing an uptick in appendicitis? You know, it's really interesting. What What's happened is um, we are seeing an uptick in different illnesses where when we test these kids, they're positive for COVID or they show COVID antibodies and parents might have been unaware of an infection. So using diabetes or, um, you know, appendicitis is just two examples. Sometimes we're finding out that these kids are positive for COVID where the families didn't know that they were positive, again, or they have antibodies. And so we're trying to draw that correlation. I'm not saying that if your kid gets COVID that you have to watch out for appendicitis. We always have to watch out for things like that. But what I am saying is COVID has interesting effects on different people's bodies, including our kids. So we do have to, we can't just rest on our laurels, and we do have to continue the surveillance, and we do have to continue to try to protect them because we're going to continue to see different things come from COVID. And again, long-term COVID is a possibility in kids as well as it is in adults, so we have to keep that in mind as well. Dr. Janelle Fisher, Chair of Pediatrics, Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. That's a new one, appendicitis. We looked at each other. Yeah. Yeah, Ooh, a new one. Yeah. We've heard so many. Coming up, Medicare Advantage plans look like good deals, but a government report finds many people have found them lacking in a big way. And if you're not feeling so creative during a work brainstorming session over the computer, there's a reason for it, and we will tell you what it is, but not now. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do it later. Yeah. Right now, many recent college grads have been struggling to find high-paying office jobs. They've been working at places like Starbucks, Amazon warehouses, retail, REI, that kind of thing. And they've been leading the organizing charge for union membership inside of these places. It's these college grads that are doing it in many cases. Uh, Barry Eidlin, sociologist who studies labor at McGill University in Montreal, actually in uh, South Pasadena right now, though. Uh, Barry, thanks for being with us. So what's going on with uh, this group that's, that's kind of leading the charge? Is it this idea that, hey, they didn't envision themselves being here out of college for maybe as long as they are. So they look around, they say, I'm not making enough. I need better benefits. And so I got to do something to make the best of my situation. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the 
difference here is that we've got a generation of people, you know, this is a generation that came of age uh, in the Great Recession um, <clears throat> and has really come of age in there where, where this sort of American dream that people have been promised of, you know, owning a home and being able to, you know, put your kids through school and all that kind of stuff is just not in the picture. And, um, and they realize that, uh, and I think that, you know, there's, this is not news. This has been going on for well over a decade or more. What's different now is people are realizing, okay, we need to do something about it. And, uh, and, the, and that they need to do something about it collectively. And so that's why a lot more uh, of these young people are, are figuring out that, you know, these unions are, are the answer for sort of addressing these issues because it's a generational problem. It's not their individual problem. Now, of course, you know, companies like Starbucks, Amazon, not exactly uh, in favor of uh, collective bargaining, in favor of mm-hmm. unions. And they've been very vocal in expressing that point of view in action and words, I, I might add. Yes. Uh, so are they likely then, even if there's a, a shortage of people, are they likely to eventually say, we're not going to hire you if you've got a, a, you know, a fancy or not so fancy college degree, because if you walk in the door, uh, a union may walk out of the door. Yeah, I think that um, that seems to be unlikely just because, uh, you know, these, especially in, in today's economy where, where these companies have a dust, are facing a labor shortage, um, they can't be that picky about it. But also, you know, the reality of the modern workforce is that a lot of people have some college. So if you're weeding out everybody who has, you know, some college or something, you're just leaving out a huge portion of your potential workforce, right? So the, the change that's been happening in the labor force is not something that uh, it's not that these, it's not that, you know, there's that, that these people, I mean, these people are moving into these jobs, but it's not like there's a whole bunch of other people who could move into them as well. You think that some of the organizers also know that uh, if the companies aren't in support, maybe the customers that are walking through the door are like morning coffee people at Starbucks going, yeah, you guys should have a union or, or people at REI picking up their expensive gear going, you know what, I, I support this, go for it. Well, absolutely. And we've definitely, we've absolutely seen that, you know, there's been pictures of if you're on Twitter at all and following what these Starbucks workers are doing in particular, you know, they've got these community bulletin boards at these Starbucks and they're just filled with customer um, you know, message of support. One of the interesting things about the current drive is that a lot of these companies you're thinking about Starbucks, you're thinking about REI, even Amazon to some extent, they at least have these pretensions of being these progressive companies, right? And they, they, they want to be these progressive employers. And Amazon says they want to be the greatest employer on earth, right? They sort of make a big point about that. But Starbucks and REI, they, they have these sort of mission-driven statements. And that is sort of, uh, you know, so these workers are sort of like asking them to, you know, live up to that, right? And I think that that their customers also sort of buy into that progressive image, and 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 sort of treating your workers fairly seems to be a pretty no-brainer idea for what a progressive company should look like. So you mean these these workers are actually what shocked that they they're finding out that these employers are not so interested in progressive ideas if it impacts their own business. Exactly. You know, so I think that, 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 that there's a lot of companies that you're seeing that sort of talk a big game about sort of social justice and you know, particularly in the wake of Black Lives Matter in 2020. 
Um, you know, but then when it comes like, oh, are you actually going to like provide predictable schedules, decent benefits and, uh, you know, decent wages um, and, you know, protect workers from harassment and those kinds of things, um, the, 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 the talk kind of gets a bit quiet. Barry Island, sociologist, studies labor at McGill University. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. President Biden wants to send more aid to Ukraine to help the country defeat Russia. President today asking Congress to approve $33 billion in more funding. The money is only expected to last for five months. So what happens after that if the war is still ongoing? Alex Ward is Politico's national security reporter and anchor of National Security Daily. Alex, thanks for, thanks for being with us. So everyone is now thinking that this war, unfortunately, is going to drag on for quite some time. So five months seems, you know, good, I suppose, but a drop in the bucket, potentially. Potentially. But at the same time, you know, you've got to weigh the, the presidency and uh, the, the, the dogs of war here. So, He's got other things going on. He's got COVID relief he's trying to pass. He's trying to fight inflation. So, of course, you know, do you, how much money do you really want to spend on Ukraine in this moment? Uh, plus, you also have to consider that the war might be different in five months, right? How is it still going to be fighting in the Donbass or will it have turned to urban warfare? And if it has turned to urban warfare, then maybe you don't want to authorize as many tanks and heavy weapons as you did before. Um, so, in this way, you know, you're, I think you see the administration balancing what a changing war landscape could look like, plus uh, domestic consideration. So how much in here is, is, you know, actual military equipment, that kind of support? And how much is just money to keep Ukraine kind of afloat with day-to-day expenses? Because you got to keep your economy moving as you're fighting a war. So, it's, I mean, you've got about $16.4 billion for the Defense Department. You've got, uh, you know, many other billions for foreign financing based trying to wean countries like India and Vietnam off of Russian military equipment. You've got economic aid. I mean, it's not just all, you know, for for weaponry. It's kind of a all-encompassing pro-Russia, anti, uh, pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia strategy. The thing that stood out to me, actually, uh, and I just alluded to it, was the $4 billion in foreign military financing. So basically, what the administration is, is, is taking advantage of this opportunity to diversify Ukraine's military, get them to buy more advanced equipment, possibly from the U.S., and then also trying to get countries like India and Vietnam to no longer use Russian military systems, in part because the Russians probably don't have the parts that they used to have anymore because of the sanctions and the export controls. So it's kind of a savvy play by the administration to go, not only are we helping Ukraine, but we're really also trying to hurt Russia's defense ties and industry uh, as, as we make that play. The um, the kinds of weapons that this money is going to buy, uh, are they specifically the kinds of weapons that Ukraine can uh, Ukraine uh, consistently says it needs mostly offensive weapons, jets or are these sort of more of the same, perhaps more sophisticated, but more of the same? Well, it looks like it's going to be a lot of, again, heavy weaponry. I mean, there's no jets in here, but as of now, you know, the U.S. doesn't have the Soviet era jets that Ukrainian pilots are used to flying. Those are in Europe. Right. Those, are, those belong to European nations. So they're the ones who could send it over to Ukraine. Um, in this case, uh, what we're really doing is, you know, sending ammo, uh, heavy weaponry, uh, some more training, some how, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, a lot of the same stuff we've been providing. But the, the real difference here is, you know, this is the sort of quality of quantity um, and quantity is the quality all itself. 
uh, and $33 billion is just a lot. It's about half the budget, if you want to think of it this way, of the State Department and U.S. Uh, Department of Inter- uh, for International Development, or even more than we spend on the Space Force. I mean, it's a lot of money in military and economic aid that we're sending uh, Ukraine's way. So in terms of the lawmakers that have signaled so far, is anybody doubtful about this, or is everybody still on that same page of, yes, this is, this is necessary, we have to support these guys? So support in Congress is extremely strong. The, the question is, you know, does do the Democrats try to link the Ukraine bill to the COVID bill or try to separate them? Uh, one advantage, and you can hear from the de- Democratic leadership, is, well, because there's so much support for Ukraine, if you link the COVID bill, which is you know, a lot more controversial and there's less unanimity, then, you know, but if you link them, then it might sail through. Uh, if you separate them, you might get Ukraine, but you might not get the COVID bill. And, of course, the administration wants, wants that through as well. Um, Biden seemed a bit ambiguous or not ambiguous. He seemed to not necessarily care. He was like, yeah, put them together, separate them. I don't care as long as they pass. So this is now sort of in Schumer's court and Pelosi's court. You know, what, what makes the most sense and what can they get done? Alex Ward, Politico's national security reporter and anchor of National Security Daily. A new federal report finds that every year tens of thousands of people enrolled in private Medicare Advantage plans are denied necessary care that should be covered. These plans have been growing in popularity over the years as they're often less expensive and provide a wide number of benefits compared to the traditional government-run program offers. The investigators urging Medicare officials to strengthen oversight of these plans. With us now is Paul Siegert, managing partner at PCS Advisors, health benefits consulting firm. Paul, thanks for being here. So just so we're all on the same page, these plans are a little different than than regular Medicare, but still should have been giving these people the things that, that they needed. That's right. They are private plans that are supposed to deliver the same benefits to their members as government-provided Medicare. Uh, and then their goal, of course, is to, to run it at a profit. And I think what we're seeing here is an example of how that can get off track. Well, the, the, the idea, right, as I understand the Medicare Advantage plans, is uh, if you are on Medicare but you want certain other things that Medicare does not provide like like eye care right or dental care then some people go to these advantage plans are they just not delivering the services that they claim they're delivering or do they find sort of sneaky ways to deny payment which regrettably all insurance companies seem to do yeah i think it's the latter uh they have been found to deny as much almost one in five treatments that should be approved uh, and they are they may have rules in place within their Medicare Advantage protocol that don't match up with Medicare's rules of what might what might need to be met in terms of requirements prior to getting a service. Maybe you need to have an X-ray before you get an MRI, which might be unique to that Medicare Advantage program, but is not a requirement of Medicare. And so uh, it is resulting in people not getting care that they essentially are are paying for or have paid for throughout their lifetime to get in uh, at this time in their life. Now, are they allowed to have those kind of extra steps you're supposed to go through? I mean, uh, past a certain point, if if regular Medicare was going to give this to me anyways, why do I need to go and get these tests and that test before getting the procedure that I, I need at the end, at the, at the end of the road? Yeah, they really aren't supposed to have these other steps. Uh, their kind of response or pushback to this study is that they um, they are the result of human error. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the human error is, is kind of consistently 
<laughs> leaning one direction. <laughs> so that makes you know makes you certainly question that, and it's a good thing that it's being looked at. I yes, how that since, works. Yeah. Yes, it's a little-known ailment, <laughs> perennial human error. Uh, is there a, some reliable place or way that somebody who is uh, in the market for a uh, Medicare Advantage plan can find out if they're choosing the lesser of the evils? You know, that's that's where the trouble is, I think, not only with Medicare, but with our, our payment model in general, is that at time of enrollment, it's natural that a consumer is going to pick a low-cost option. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not low-cost without, you know, just very generally speaking, if it's lower cost and they're giving me more services, they're going to have to do something to make that work financially. Uh, because when you step back and look at the big picture of our healthcare system, Medicare already tends to underpay providers and hospitals, sometimes at a loss. Uh, so if you're going to go into these Medicare Advantage plans and going to give you even more benefit, you, there's going to be some give and take there and, and you know, really take. Uh, in some cases, you're going to give up access. Maybe you don't have access to, this, to the, all of the physicians like you might. Uh, they might limit it that way, or they might make their program profitable by limiting access to Karens, like we're seeing here. Yeah, and do they just try and low-cost the people, too? Like, oh, if it's deemed you need to go to, like, the rehab center for something, they say, oh, you know what, uh, denied, go do it at home, because that's cheaper. Yeah, I mean, there is some of that that goes on. You have people that maybe should have been released into skilled nursing and weren't. Uh, there's, there's Some of these things are pretty um, pretty egregious. And just driven by the financial, you know, benefit to that Medicare Advantage program. So, it, it, other than having Elon Musk pick up your medical costs, is is there a if solution? You, if you tweeted him, he might. Tweet, I yeah, mean, maybe he does he stuff all the time. I mean, is there? <laughs> he replies there, to people. Is there a solution? Well, I think the so, the solution is fixing the whole payment model, which is obviously a massive uh, proposition here. But when we get down inside what these plans are paying. When you when someone goes out in this example and gets a prescription, we shouldn't be paying four times what our pure countries are paying for that drug. And drugs are driving a huge part of this whole conversation. And we shouldn't be we shouldn't have our consumers paying four X for the same exact drug that was likely developed by a US company. Um, our our pure countries shouldn't get that at one fourth. If we can address some of these systemic causes of waste in our system, then we won't have to see things like this occurring for these programs to be profitable. So people have talked about that for years, though. Are you more hopeful now than you have been in the past that that's going to happen? I am more hopeful. Yeah, I really actually am. I'm not hopeful that uh, lobbying is still effective, so that'll that'll slow change. But I'm optimistic, and I see examples all over the country, and it's a growing trend, where employers who are running a health plan, are hiring consultants, getting into the details, finding out where the waste is, cleaning it up. And that trend is going to spill over into other areas of, of, of health care, the health care payment models, the other, you know, whether it's government-provided care, individual plans, et cetera. As they put a spotlight on this waste and fix it, I think that's going to drive the solution for the whole country. And I am actually optimistic about it. It can be a depressing conversation at times, but we're seeing – uh, some very good signs, at least in the employer payment model. 
I think I'm just going to submit my next medical claim to Elon Musk and it's hope for the best. Yeah. But but for people for people who are literally like trying to pick one and they're sitting there scrolling and they're like, oh, I'm going to do an advantage plan. What? How do they know? What do they? How do you pick at least as close to what you're going to want as possible? Well, I think you may step back and say, should I do an advantage plan uh, for this monthly reduction in cost, or or should I? go with traditional Medicare. And it may make more sense. Just understand the risks, you know, with a reduction in cost, or if, if you're getting additional benefits for the same price, you are going to have to give up something along the way for that. They may limit access. They li- may limit the number of facilities you can, you can access. Uh, they may deny care or make it tougher and jump through hoops and so on. So it might be worth paying a little bit more monthly to have a higher level of confidence. I mean, in, in, in most cases, would it be better for people to just stick with conventional Medicare? Well, when, when my parents asked me, that was my recommendation. Really? So you said don't, don't bother with any of the Advantage plans, just stick with Medicare? That's right. It's Paul Siegert, managing partner, PCS Advisors Health Benefits Consulting Firm. Paul, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Remember when former President Trump was on Twitter, he could tweet some mean things about people and people would be outraged. They say, how could a president say that kind of thing? I remember getting up every morning. To see what he tweeted? Yeah, to see what what did he tweet today. Uh, Maybe that bad behavior on social media is contagious in Washington, D.C. A study from Stanford University finds the level of incivility in tweets by members of Congress increased by 23 percent between 2009 and 2019. The researchers say it is fueled in part by the Twitter like and retweet buttons because it reinforces the content. Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman from Sherman Oaks is with us. He has been in Congress. So we're going to date you now, Congressman. You've been there since before Twitter started. Wow. Well, yep. <laughs> welcome. Was it better in the before times? Yeah, it, it, it must have been, right? It, it had to have been better before Twitter. I don't know. Sometimes you get a rock and a chisel, and you chisel a mean <laughs> message at one of your colleagues. and Leave it, it at the door window. for them yeah. so they find it in the morning. <laughs> but do you think uh, what the study says, uh, does that seem to be the reality that, that you see? Well, it's the reality across the uh, the spectrum of media and discourse in our society. Um, I mean, KNX is a good, civil, right down the middle of the road source for news, and you're in competition with other radio stations where people are screaming at one side or the other or taking uh, extreme positions. And uh, it's uh, it's hard to uh, to get people to focus on you uh, when uh, the extremes seem more interesting. So do we blame social media and the likes and the retweets because you say something, you know, outrageous or you say something mean and people are going to pay attention to it and you're going to get all of the uh, publicity, which is, you know, what people want. Or has has membership changed? Are, are the people getting elected to Congress now different than they used to be? Congress is the House of Representatives. We are literally representative of the society in every way. And we represent a society there where uh, the rewards for civility um, are small and the rewards for being uh, extreme and yelling and uh, 
are are, are there, and whether it's more attention or or more support. Uh, there isn't uh, a lot of voters in today's world that will say, "Well, yeah, I kind of agree with that tweet." He said that the other side was really bad, but, you know, he shouldn't have said that because uh, it was done in an offensive way. Uh, Instead, uh, the people that, uh, and and it's not, by the way, just attention. Keep in mind that a lot of members raise money through their uh, social media presence. And so if you make a lot of people uh, uh, think that you're being crazy and extreme, and another group of people think you're wonderful and they give you money, the result is you get money. Do you worry that, uh, you know, Elon Musk, who, of course, is, is now in the process of buying Twitter and has said that he wants it to be, you know, in effect, unchained, that he wants total free expression and, and anything pretty much goes so long as it's legal. Uh, but are you worried that that incivility that the study pointed out is only going to now increase, and for one thing, perhaps the former president, uh, Donald Trump, will return to Twitter? Well, there'll be a place for Donald Trump to say what he wants to say, and a lot of people will listen, and if it's not one media platform, it's another. Uh, I've opposed most of what Trump has tried to do, and I'm convinced that our ideas are better, and I don't think that... I'd like to see civility, but I think imposed civility, um, you got to ask, well, is that free speech and who's determining what is and isn't civil? And there, uh, there are people on the left as well as on the right who uh, say uh, uncivil things. And uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, as much as I'd like to see rewards for civility and as much as I'd like to see bipartisanship, I don't think you can impose it by by muzzling uh, uh, this or that comment. Do you read your mentions when you post something and people get in the comments? Do, do you look at those or do you ignore them? I mean, half the time they're bots. But like when people are saying mean things to you, do you read those? No, but my 13-year-old daughter does. And uh, she great, gets great joy out of uh, <laughs> <laughs> any, any time her father is insulted at Mr. Day. <laughs> All right. Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman from Sherman Oaks. Well, people have been working at home now for the past two years or so, probably more than used to Zoom meetings with co-workers, hours spent staring at faces through the computer screen. New study from Columbia University finds these video meetings, they're bad for brainstorming. There's a psychological reason why, and it has to do with uh, too much focus, which might sound odd on the surface, but we're going to explain. And with us now is Adam Green, psychology professor at Georgetown. Adam, thanks for being with us. Now, although this is a radio show, what Mike and I are doing, we're on a Zoom call now with Adam, so we can it's look so at each other. It's so strange to see people. I know. Uh, hi, Adam. How <laughs> are you doing? We don't normally do this. <laughs> right. So, so explain. Hi, hi. Yeah. So why is it bad, or, or why does it uh, stifle creativity, the fact that I could look at you and you could look at Mike and we could all look at each other now? Well, you know, I think this is a really interesting study, and I think... The big takeaway is that it does, uh, and and I believe it, and I think that's probably something we've all felt when we've been stuck in our our you know whatever siloed offices away from the people that we're used to interacting with live that we don't get as far or do as well uh, in the meetings that we have. I think 
the reason why uh, that these authors focus on has to do with focus, right? With like how much we're staring at the screen. I think uh, that's part of the story. And I think that's an interesting part of the story. And I think more work needs to be done to figure out exactly everything that's going on. But I do think actually something you guys brought up is likely to be a big part of it, which is that we like to look at faces, right? We sometimes can't help ourselves. Faces matter to brains. This is something that neuroscience has actually been studying for for decades now. There is wiring in the brain that gets very excited specifically for other human faces. And there's a lot of information in a face, social information, attractiveness, age, lots of these things that we process. Our wheels start turning. And here's the thing about creativity. You, You have a limited amount of attentional resources and you need to turn those attentional resources inward to come up with really good creative ideas. When there's something outside of you that's really drawing those attentional resources, that's going to make it harder to come up with those those new original uh, creative ideas. So I think that's a big part of what's going on here. So with the face on the screen that I'm staring right at across the screen from me, that's taking all my attention. Or uh, we've done stories on this too. It's like the fatigue of also looking at your own face the whole time because your eyes will start Absolutely. to wander. So between the two of those, I don't have time to kind of let the creative juices get going elsewhere because my eyes are front and center. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think that's right. I think we, we're fascinated by our own faces too. And here's the thing. When you know when you're in person, so th- this this study compared in person to uh, to online meeting. In person, you're not allowed to just stare at some someone's face for like a long, you <laughs> know, like, uninterrupted period that? of time. Yeah. That'd be super weird. Right. You're definitely not aw- allowed to just like gaze at yourself in the mirror uninterruptedly in the middle of your your two thirty meeting. Uh, that'd be that'd be really weird. So in in this very, very unusual situation where we're doing both of those things at once, there's not a whole lot left. You're, you're, you're exactly right. There's not a whole lot left uh, in terms of our cognitive attentional resources to do that internal attentional search. That's really critical to the process of of creative ideation, generating new ideas. So do you think that there's a a biological cause of this? Is, is there something that is happening within our brains uh, and a bi- at a biological level, when we're sort of distracted by fixating on a on a screen and looking at one another as opposed to sitting in a room and our eyes are kind of darting all over the place as we think of something. Yeah, so I, there, 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 there definitely is. There's been a long debate in neuroscience about a particular part of the brain called the fusiform gyrus down kind of underneath in the bottom part of your brain. And you know, lots of evidence shows that when you see a face, this part of the brain gets really, really excited. The debate has been, does it also care about other things that you're interested in? Like maybe if you're an expert in cars, if you're an expert in birds, you start to see activity in this area. But it doesn't really matter what the answer to that question is. Almost every, in almost everybody, this area gets very excited about faces. So there does seem to be an area of our brain that whether it's whether that's the only thing it can do or whether that's just the thing it ends up doing in almost everybody, it is very, very excited about faces. So, so yes, absolutely. We know that faces are important for brains. And when there's a face, as opposed to lots of other things you could look at, people will choose to focus on that face uh, and it'll take that focus away from other things. Um, and this is, you know, this sort of uh, attentional cognitive brain-based biological process and how that relates to creativity 
this is something that's a really, there's a lot of energy around, uh, around this because we want to know how can we help people think more creatively? How can we intervene in the brain to think more creatively? Or how can we intervene uh, by giving people certain cues, creating certain workspaces? And this is actually, you know, it's exciting to see this work come out right now. There's a meeting, uh, the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity for people who are really interested in finding out more. Uh, we're, that, that's going to be in a couple of weeks. And actually, just to plug one of my favorite Angelinos, mm. uh, Keith Holyoke, who's a psychologist and a neuroscientist and a poet at UCLA, is going to be speaking there along with some other, other really great people. So for people who are having the in-person meetings and they're not on Zoom and there's one guy at the table and he's kind of looking out the window and he's, he's, he's kind of you think he's drifted off. But let, let him do that for a minute because he might come up with that idea. <laughs> You know, this is something I struggle with as, as a professor, right? You see that student who's staring out the window. I think I, I, I let him do that for a while, but when I see the eyelids start to shut, that's when I, <laughs> that's when I Bring him on back, yeah. Now, the, yeah. The, the weird thing is uh, Mike is like eight feet from me, but instead of looking at him, I'm looking at him on my phone. <laughs> that's weird. It's, it's, it's the thing. There you go. You've proved yeah. the, uh, the whole concept. All right. Uh, Adam Green, psychology Thank professor you. at Georgetown. Adam, thanks. We'll wave, we'll wave you goodbye because yeah. we can do that right now. All right. That's in depth for today. And we'll be back tomorrow.